Welcome to Manager Tools. Onboarding, Chapter 1, The Basics, Part 2. This cast answers these questions. What is onboarding? Why should I have a standard onboarding process? What are the basics of good onboarding? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. If you're one of the many managers who's been promoted into leadership due to your outstanding performance as an individual contributor, congratulations, you've earned this. Wait, what? You mean no one told you that the skills you spent your entire career honing would now collect dust while your directs do the work you love? And now you're in a role that frankly can't be that hard because it's not like we're going to train you to do it. Or are we? If you feel thrown into people management without a life raft, the Effective Manager Conference is for you. We help subject matter experts become the managers they weren't quite sure they could be by providing a step-by-step, actionable process for being people leaders. Visit us at manager-tools.com forward slash training to register today. Well, good morning, Mark. Morning. Last week, uh, we we talked about really the question of until you got something, you got nothing, which is very similar to our interviewing, (laughs) one of the key points in our interviewing series. Uh, And the point being that until somebody is on board and for the first 90 days, you really don't have something. I mean, you've, you've offered the candidate, right? They accepted the offer, but they haven't shown up yet. And as I shared in my, in the last cast, (laughs) I learned that the hard way, just because you offered and they accepted doesn't mean they're necessarily going to show up. Well, yeah. And, and actually that's a bigger problem that people who accept but then don't show up. It's unconscionable, folks. It's, it's yeah, not. you can't, you just can't do that, right? You can't fritter away your investment by not pinning it down once you've invested all that time in the interviewing process. But of course, the real difference, I think, in our onboarding process, and there's a case to be made that your onboarding process starts when you first communicate with a potential candidate because they're learning about you. And if you're interviewing process, and if you don't know it, folks, this is manager tools and managers interviews. So we teach interviewing as well at our effective interviewing conference. But that process actually starts long before the acculturation process, the sense of whether or not somebody wants to join you. But I think the big difference for us is onboarding starts the moment you make the offer. You don't assume that somebody, just because you made the offer and you feel good, oh, I found somebody. That doesn't mean anything. You finding somebody doesn't mean anything. Them coming to work and being effective 120 days from now, that's what's important. So a good onboarding process or hiring process starts from the day of the offer. And it goes a full 90 days. It's not 90 days from acceptance or only the new employee's first couple of weeks. It's 90 days. And I'll mention somebody, uh, there's a young man I've gotten to know in the last year or so named Will Ryan, who started a career at Accenture. And um, because of the way hiring is done today, or has been actually for the last couple of years, we're recording this in 2018, there have been plenty of larger firms who have hired college graduates in June and said, you don't need to start until January. Now, that's technically not a good thing. But having an offer from a company you want to go to work for is better than not having one. And I think this will go away as the economy heats up. But folks, we're serious. If you offer a person as a college graduate, and frankly, in some cases, the offer happened long before they graduated, you may have a year's worth of relationship building. And that is a classic example of saying, well, we made the offer and 
I don't have time to keep track of this kid for the next year, but boy, do you put yourself at risk. And yes, it would be wrong of a young person to go, I accepted, you know, but gee, another offer just fell on my lap and I can't turn it down and so on. It would be wrong because once you've accepted an offer, professionally, ethically, you can't say no, you can't turn it down, but it happens. And if it happens to you, you look like you've got egg on your face. Well, you do have egg on your face. Going back to the to the ramping up part, once a person's on board, we've all had that feeling of wanting to make a difference early in a new job. You want to make an impact. But the burden shouldn't fall solely on the shoulders of the new hire to make a difference. There's no time while you're deciding whom to offer to give every candidate a full education to start getting them up to speed. Interviewing is about deciding whom to hire, not educating every candidate to be effective day one. That'd be wasteful. But once they've accepted, you have an opportunity to say, okay, what do I want? Hopefully, you don't want a warm body. You want high productivity, and productivity in the world walks around in human form. So we've got to figure out how to get maximum productivity as quickly as possible out of this human. And too many organizations in the world end up producing somebody in terms of them being in their job in, say, 90 days, as an example, that is not as highly effective as they could be because we simply underinvest in the early learning. I'll never forget, I had a job once where my boss said, look, in the first few weeks, you are not going to be swamped. You don't need to try to figure out reasons to stay here until 7 o'clock at night. Go home at 5.30. In about three or four weeks, you're going to be so busy, you're going to long for being able to go home at 5.30 or 6. It will be, you know, you'll wish for it. I've seen that repeated hundreds of times with new people saying, yeah, I'm just getting started. It's not, it's not super busy yet. Okay, I'm not suggesting we make people busy. But I am suggesting, why are we throwing away valuable time that we could bring people up to speed faster? I could tell you why. <laughs> I can tell you why. Okay. Why? Because most managers haven't figured out yet how to delegate, and they believe that for them to do that is they have to personally train the person, right? So, so folks, we don't need to go into it, but that's, that's a delegation yeah. issue that many, many managers fall into. There's no reason why it's going to take a lot of your time. Yeah. Just saying. And another thing, if you ask me relative to onboarding, I think what you're talking about, Mike, is a fundamental managerial fault, which most of us, if not all of us, have engaged in at one time or another. There are people who are better managers than you and I that never did that, but you and I both did that. I know you have you have another point. I, I just decided I mentioned it because I think there is a reason why we call one-on-ones feedback, coaching, and delegation the trinity, is that these things, if you do them poorly or not at all, they show up as root causes of many, many issues, of which this is just one we're talking about right now. So yeah, folks, if you haven't if you haven't gone through those, you I would recommend that you do so. Good point. Yeah. I was thinking more from the standpoint of the through the lens of onboarding. And the problem, I think, through the lens of onboarding is the diffusion of responsibility for onboarding among several different parties in the organization. Oh yeah. All right. I mean, I think far too many managers. It may not be 70%. It may be. Uh, it's certainly easily 40% of managers somehow think that even though they're responsible for the tactical process of hiring 
And HR sometimes gives them reason to doubt that in terms of how involved HR is. Managers think that somehow the onboarding process is controlled by the organization. Or put differently, because HR particularly, but other parts of the organization like IT and security and training are all involved and they act as if because they work for somebody more powerful than the hiring manager, if you're a frontline manager, that somehow they get to speak with the VP's power, which by the way, staff people, you don't. If they're involved, they act as if, hey, we've set up this standardized thing. So your guy has to go through our standardized thing. Right. And it makes it easy for the manager to give up their responsibility, right? Their responsibility for the onboarding process. Just, it makes it too easy. It makes it easy, but it's still wrong. (laughs) That's the thing. Yeah. Oh, I mean, look, and and look, guys, we're not trying to cast stones at you. If you're a, a frontline manager and you've done this before, don't feel like the Lone Ranger. Mike and I did it too. You say, oh, HR reached out to me. I got to hire and they figured out the compensation and, and, uh, Somebody's got to do benefits, and then I get a note saying, hey, there are these 13 things. And suddenly I go, hey, one less thing for me to do. They're taking over onboarding. But that's all administrative onboarding, but it's not effectiveness onboarding. And look, all of these systems, HR, IT, security, training, whatever else, they're all well-intentioned. And some of them actually have pretty good basic checklists. But unfortunately, too many of them at the staff level, at the corporate level, act as if, no, you have to fit into our system. And to some degree, if you've got a 10,000-person company, they're running two or three classes every week, and your person has to be signed up for the class. Unfortunately, if you sit in on those classes, no, this, this is what gets me in trouble, but they're horrible. I mean, they're absolutely horrible. In fact, the first thing the first person says is, we'll be able to get you done early today. Well, why is that? Why not schedule it for two hours less time? And anyway, yeah, you hesitated for like a half a second before doing that, so you get credit for being yeah, a kind, gentle person. I'm learning. I'm sure when I'm 80, I'll have gotten over that. You know, the thing that occurs to me is like, as we were going through this particular section here, it's like, I wonder how many young aspiring managers have listened to the podcast and listened to several of them and have just decided like, I thought this was going to be easy. I was going to be in charge and everything, everything's going to be easy. Yeah, forget this. Yeah. I, I think I'll skip the whole management thing. We're recording this on a on a Wednesday and things I think I think just came out. And next Wednesday, if you, folks, if you don't know what things I think, I think is a weekly email that I send privately to all of our licensees. It, it's surprisingly popular. And uh, I started writing next week's version of it on the plane back from Detroit last night. And... Um, I actually talk about the dark mark in in uh, things I think I think because there are times when I just get so frustrated at the underinvestment in managers and the over administration of management and the wrong measures and everything else and it's stuff like this that just frustrates me that you know some somebody in IT can say yeah your guy you know he won't get a laptop for three weeks because he missed the training this morning the imperiousness the arrogance the the, the sense of, hey, I'm at corporate and therefore you work for me because the corporate people in my office are very powerful. And you know, it's like, no, no, that's wrong. And if you're a staff person, you support managers. The mistake that we make, that Mike and I both made, folks, so we're not casting stones, is all those support people who are taking your people through some form of onboarding, none of them have the ultimate responsibility that you do as a manager. And onboarding is about 
creating maximum effectiveness quickly. Yes, effectiveness requires a login, a laptop, a badge, all that stuff needs to happen. But those things are necessary, but they're not sufficient, okay? And to be fair, I understand why staff counterparts are doing what they're doing. They're systematizing it because they're restricted by personnel and budget limitations and training schedules and so on. It makes total sense. But the point I'm making is in the mind of the manager, you've got to get out of your head that those people are doing onboarding. You're doing onboarding and they have some components that your person needs to go through in order for you to help him or her achieve maximum effectiveness. We've gotten a bunch of questions in uh, that we're going to cover at the end of the cast because so many of them are covered by this first cast and we're not, and we're doing more casts than this one about onboarding. We're going to share our draft, um, onboarding process that then people can edit to their own value going forward. And one of the casts was, you know, is it just a checklist or, you know, could we include some things about relationships? I said, well, in my head, my thought was actually you can include things about a relationship in a checklist because the checklist is what helps get it done. But absolutely effectiveness includes relationships with other people. And there should be a thorough thought process about who outside of your team should any new hire meet. Sorry, I said should, and I know I shouldn't do that. So with all that in mind, you certainly wouldn't then want to say, okay, I've got a responsibility for relationships maybe, or some process stuff on my team, but IT has this, security has this, training has this. That's not going to work. It won't work. The idea of having to keep track of a number of different systems. So you want one process that covers both persuading the person to accept your offer. Remember, that's phase one. And then ramping up to speed, again, versus several different ones, including all that administrivia. And that one will be easier to update, it's easier to keep track of, it's easier to report on. And if you have one, your hot wash, that you can make it better every time at the end of an onboarding, you know, at the end of some new person's 90 days, you're going to be updating it and you'll get smarter and better every single time. There's no sense having two or three separate processes that are related or linked, but you have to keep track of them in a different place and heaven forbid you're using somebody else's checklist and you have to log into their interest internet site or whatever, just copy and paste their stuff into yours. I can't imagine somebody in it is going to say, no, that's my intellectual property. You can't, right. you can't put that into your Excel spreadsheet or your smart sheet or whatever you're using. The one checklist is important because you don't want to be stumbling through this. I mean, the whole purpose of onboarding is early effectiveness, right? So this is not right. where you want to stumble. If you're stumbling through this for a month, like, I mean, you wasted all that time and your folks will see that you stumbled. So make one list and get stuff done early and effectively. Yeah. Onboarding is about effectiveness. It's not admin. It's not welcoming. It's not necessities. It's all of those things. And it leads to higher levels of early productivity. And if you, in the first 90 days, you achieve, let's say, getting somebody to 65% productivity, I'm making that up, but onboarding couldn't got them to 75, the day they actually really start learning about the job, really understanding it, somewhere in that first 180 days, the person who got onboarded well starts off with a 10-point head start and all learning he or she does from that probably that gap is sustained for some period of time. 
And it's been our experience anyway. The reason we mentioned 90 days is you'll start to notice higher productivity between two people you hire after about 90 days. It boils down to something as simple as asking yourself, how can you not have a well-followed, regularly updated, measured process for higher productivity and new hires? You can't justify that. Now, you can justify it in your head from the standpoint of, I don't have time. And guys, we get that. It still bothers me to this day that many of you are listening right now on your commute. And to some degree, your commute is our friend. I'm not a big fan of commutes, even though I live fairly near Silicon Valley. So we're going to do it for you. That's the whole point of manager tools. We're going to give you the onboarding process. We'll walk you through it on the show. And then of course, if you're a licensee, you'll have documents you can use and download and start implementing them. And we're hoping we can convince you to then share them with the rest of the community so everybody can learn from everybody else. Well, I don't know that I would call this crowdsourcing, uh, but I would say community learning is a good thing. And we probably haven't done enough of it on Manager Tools, although certainly if, you, if you're thinking about doing one-on-ones, please come to our website. It's free, and there are probably 50 to 70 different one-on-one forms that you can look at that came from our community. You know, this whole checklist and the importance of the process, et cetera, makes reminds me of a tenet of management, which is discipline makes learning possible. And although that tenet of management isn't limited to onboarding, it's especially true of it, right? Yeah. I think there's a question in the list. I've been going over the questions and making notes about how we're going to cover them at the end of the cast and the questions we got about onboarding. And there's a question about, you know, gosh, you know, checklist. I think you're going to give me a checklist. Isn't that micromanaging? I really struggle with that. I mean, I think you have to be really far over to the idea that companies are communes where everybody does what they want and magically somehow productivity occurs. I mean, the CFO of your company has a checklist for what she needs done in order to provide quarterly guidance to the street if you're a publicly traded company. Your CEO, he or she has a checklist of stuff probably that goes into their briefcase before they get on the plane, even if it's a corporate plane. There's all kinds of checklists. I mean, probably one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years is Dr. Gawande's book called The Checklist Manifesto. I mean, surgeons, the best one think of themselves as artists, have discovered that checklists save lives. Something like on orders of magnitude, more lives are saved by surgeons who use checklists and meet their team and scrub in certain ways and follow certain processes. Now you would say, oh, well, I, I, you know, I'm an artist. I'm a, I'm a designer. I, I mean, a checklist is simply a way to recognize that, first of all, your memory is horrible. Your memory is actually not a hard drive. It's a tool for learning. And the idea that you wouldn't have, to have a checklist is mind-boggling. If you're listening to us right now and you're saying, you know, I just think a checklist may be too rigid, then you should probably never listen to us again. I don't know if most people know, but it used to be years ago, most people knew that I was a private pilot, right? Right. And there's a reason why airplane travel today is so flippin' safe, right? It's crazy safe. Not saying there's not, there's not accidents, but relative to the number of miles and hours flown, it is incredibly safe. And there's a reason for that because pilots and airlines have checklists for everything. Look, I can tell you, like I make mistakes just like everybody else. And every once in a while I fly and I'd skip a piece of the checklist and then I'd get three or four steps forward and realize, oh, 
I mess something up and then I go back to my checklist and inevitably I'd find that I missed something, right? And I wanted to live. So I <laughs> stuck with the checklist. I found it very quickly, stick with the checklist. So if we can use checklists for something like flying, like why wouldn't we use it for something like management where we're affecting just as many lives every single day, right? Yeah. <laughs> and in this particular case, now flying, if you're a commercial pilot, is a little different because it's your job, but a commercial pilot in the US only works 12 to 15 days a month, I think. And if you're a if you're a private pilot like you, you, you I mean, you might fly once a month. And if there are a hundred things to remember, you don't have a checklist. You're you're just waiting right. for an accident. Commercial pilots, they they fly lots of hours, right? Way more hours than I than I've flown in my life, right? But they still use the checklist. It, yeah. They do it every single day and they still use the checklist and they know that it makes sense, keeps them safe. But in the case of onboarding, I'm sure there are people listening going, look, I don't do this every day. So I don't, you know, I can kind of wing it and it'll be okay. Well, look, if you wing it every time, you're not going to learn or your learning won't be solidified or even worse, it won't be transferred to the person who takes your place. And remember, as a manager, it's not enough that you get results and retention. One of the underlying principles, that's how you're measured. But the underlying principle is it has to be done in a sustainable way. You have to be a manager who not only does his or her job well, gets the results and retention that the organization needs, but good enough so that you can teach how to manage to somebody else or someone else can understand it so that when you leave, someone else can step in. Management cannot just be personality. And that's part of the reason for checklists. In the case of onboarding, though, we've got a special case. It, it essentially basically follows Horseman's Christmas rule. Anything that we do rarely, such as onboarding, right, if it's been a couple of years since you hired somebody, anything you do rarely that's also important to you wears you out and resists learning. You end up repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. And if productivity is the single biggest thing, if your individual team member's productivity is the single biggest factor that leads to overall results for your team, and if you don't know it, it is, then why would you have associated with onboarding the idea that we're just going to wing it? When in fact, that reduces your chances for getting better every time, and that then reduces the effectiveness of every one of your people, or certainly slows down their journey to maximum effectiveness. And so many people say, well, no, because I only do it every once in a while, I don't have a checklist. Well, no, that's the whole point. If you don't do it every once in a while, and if it's semi-important, or in this case, very important, have a checklist. You don't need to remember all that stuff. Just follow the checklist. And by the way, everything I know, I didn't know this 20 years ago. Everything I know about creativity and learning says both of them are enormously enhanced through discipline. I was just reading that Monet, the famous impressionist, actually disciplined himself to draw the same picture over and over again, day after day after day, to improve his skill because he believed that a high level of his skill led to greater creativity. The design firms in the you know that are so famous when they come up with a new design for a phone or a laptop or some other interesting product or something in a car or something like that, they all have very, very known, very measured, very checklisty kind of processes that they go through to create something. They all just don't go sit around in a gigantic room full of 
plastic foam balls and, and <laughs> just, oh, I don't know. Let's try this or that. They're required to create a certain number of ideas. They're required to go through them all and do hot washes on the process. And if you don't have a process, you're making it up as you go. And so performance is mixed, right? Outcomes are harder to predict. Causes of success and failure are harder to isolate. That is not a recipe for sustainable management. Now, many managers say, well, Mark, that's kind of how I do interviewing. I said, well, okay, then you need to stop listening to us. <laughs> or better yet, come to work at my firm and have the team next to mine. Because I'm reminded of the Harvard year, that's all right, that's okay, you'll all work for us someday. I mean, if you're doing it that way and you're put up against a manager who's relatively as smart as you and as nice a person as you, and that manager is doing a somewhat structured interview process, which you can learn about through our podcast and the Effective Interviewing Conference, and then has a measured onboarding process that has a checklist that they review every time, they're going to bury you. And it's not going to take you longer than listening to this cast and then taking some notes about the 30 or 40 or 50 things you need to do for someone in terms of staying in touch with them and then getting them learning early and going through the administration so that they're at maximum effectiveness within 90 days. The discipline of a known to everybody, communicated to everybody that's involved and followed process, and you follow it by reporting on it, even a first-time incomplete process known to be missing something process helps us learn. That's what I've learned about discipline and learning and growth. We know what we did when we go through it. Even if we inadvertently skip a step, we know we didn't do it if we're communicating about it. So what that means is if you want to be effective in onboarding, you're going to have to write it down. You then publish it internally. And look, there's nothing wrong with sharing it with candidates. They want to get through it quickly. They want maximum effectiveness sooner. And I got to tell you, I would really have a problem. I, I read a lot about how we're supposed to manage superstars differently and so on. I'm like, yeah, no, really not. Um, we're absolutely in the minority. I think the only time we disagree with Drucker is when we say there are two reasons to fire somebody. One, because they don't get their job done. Heaven forbid, it'd still be your fault. Or two, because they tear down the team. And bringing in these superstars, uh, first of all, for the vast majority of managers in the world, you don't get an opportunity to hire superstars. Maybe on Wall Street, they want to bring somebody in and pay him or her 10 million bucks because they can make 100 million bucks and they can tolerate the culture that he or she creates fine. But we're probably not speaking to that EVP or managing director, even though we've done a lot of work on Wall Street over the years. But this idea that we're going to bring somebody in and they're like, yeah, I don't really want to get involved in the onboarding. Those are the moments when too many managers, and by the way, that this was me years ago, I wouldn't have known to do this, don't realize that this is a moment for when you have role power and you say, yeah, I'm sorry, hey, thanks, but it's non-negotiable. We have all kinds of data which shows that everybody's go through the process. No offense, dude, but you can't have a laptop without a badge. And I know you say you don't want a badge or you don't want to go to this training, but I'm telling you, you got 48 hours to go get a badge. And if, I, if it needs to be as much time as I spent hiring you, I love you, man. And as much time we went through the process and I'm so glad we found you and I'm so glad you accepted, but I will walk you over there myself if I have to. And I won't like it, by the way, because you don't get to do this in a free form way, in a comfortable way. I had a guy years ago say to me, I don't like where my cube is. And I said, oh, that's good. He said, why is it good? Because I don't like where mine is either. He says, well, what are you doing about it? I said, nothing. And he said, well, why not? He says, because it doesn't matter. 
He's like, well, it does to me. You'll get over it. The guy's like, you're not going to do anything? Nope, not going to do anything. Now, he should have known. He looks around. There's hundreds of other cubes, and they're all full. It's not worth it. And uh, he says, yeah, that was, oh, that was bothersome to me that you wouldn't move my cube. Yeah, okay. I feel terrible. Oh, no, wait, I don't. Come on, now you're not supposed to let that part of you out. Come on. No, come on. I mean, that, I, I'm just giving you an example of role power. You can't, you can't bring in a new person that says, I don't want to be a part of this process. I think a checklist is dumb and so on. And you can't give them negative feedback yet because you haven't taken them through one-on-ones and built the relationship. But at some point, they'll repeat that theme and you'll be able to say to them, hey, that's probably not the most effective way to be an effective member of an organization where it's not all about you. Right. Look, we want to share it with the candidate so they can help us do the process. And when you think about it, dude, once they start, they are us. Their learning is our learning, and that's good. And then I've alluded to this several times. And because it's an important process, and again, it's somewhat episodic rather than routine and happening weekly for large numbers, you're going to hot wash it. Every time you finish following from the moment of offer through the first 90 days, and by the way, I'm not falling on my sword about 90 days, it could be 55, it could be 104. 90 days is what ours is, and you can adjust yours to some degree. But as soon as we're done, we're going to have a hot wash, and we're going to talk about everything. And if we're smart as we're going through it, maybe you know we're having a meeting the first week between me and a couple of other people talking about where Jillian, for instance, who we're hiring, is in the process. Maybe we're making some notes on the spreadsheet saying, hey, we forgot to do this, or this this step needs to be moved up, or something like that, so that the hot wash goes even more quickly. Once you do the hot wash, then you change it, and we'll talk more about that. Good. Let's finish up this one, and we'll continue with this topic next week. How does that sound? Great. Works for me. All right, my friend. We'll see you later. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long. 